0: Have you ever been tested? Now, I I don't mean tested uh, like in school, in a a sterile, abstract exercise, uh, an academic environment. I mean put to the test. On the hot seat, uh, broiled and roasted, to see what cooks out. The kind of test that peels back the layers, one by one, in graphic detail. No more facades, no more veneers. All that's left is the real you, clearly displayed. Today we come to a a, a passage that contains such a test it's uh, uh, Genesis 22 where God tests Abraham and yes it's the kind of test that, that cuts deep right to the heart of the man at who Abraham really was at what he believed what he trusted in. But not only does it expose the heart of the man, it it also exposes the heart of God. We've talked about this before in this series on the name of God, haven't we? A study about learning who God is, that knowing God is key to our calling in Jesus Christ, key to who he is, and key to who we are as well. The, the test for Abraham, it, it hits hard from the get-go, verse 1 of uh, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. No, this was not some academic test. It moves right to the heart of everything that was important to Abraham. And it asks the question, is God important or is Isaac important. What takes priority in Abraham's life? You probably know the story of Isaac. The Lord speaks of it when he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Isaac was uh, Abraham's son. The son he had waited 99 years to receive. Abraham had no son. And in that day and age, a son was everything. You could have have gold and silver and jewels and land and position. But if you didn't have a son, you didn't have anything. A posterity. A son guaranteed a posterity. But Abraham had none. So God promises him a son. Now that son doesn't come right away. Um. Abraham is forced to wait uh, months, years, decades. But Abraham waits. Why? Because God had promised. And above all, Abraham trusted in God. By the way, faith and trust are synonymous. They're exactly the same thing. People often say they have faith, but when you dissect their faith, you find there's no trust in it. It's uh, more like a hopeful optimism, kind of what they wish will happen, what, what they want to happen. It's really not faith, uh, a, a trust-based faith. There's no real trust in the Lord at all. Faith trusts in God. His sovereign hand. Not our expectations. Uh, Faith is in him. Whatever he decides, whatever, whatever his will is, faith trusts in God. His will, not ours. Faith lets God be God. We talked about this last time as well, didn't we? Faith lets God be God. This is what set Abraham apart. He he let God be God. He let God do what God does in God's time. And the Lord, uh, in his own time, and in his own way, gave Abraham a son, Isaac, who would at this point be a, a teenager, a young teenager. Only now, after giving Isaac to Abraham, God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and sacrifice him. Your only son, maybe that gives you pause. Maybe you realize there's another son, Ishmael, the, the son born of Hagar, the, the Egyptian slave girl. But you also know that Ishmael is not the son of promise, not the son of God's provision. Rather, Ishmael is uh, the product uh, of a weaker moment in Abraham's life. A moment when he tried to help God out a little bit. You ever try to help God out? You want something to happen, so you're going to make it happen? If you contrive to make things happen in your life, I will suggest to you that you will not find the fulfillment, the blessing, that you had hoped for. I know any number of people who confuse their, their own personal desires for God's will. They manipulate and they try to bring stuff about, <clears throat> but they're never satisfied. They keep hungering for more and more and more. It doesn't really scratch the itch. We had a neighbor in, uh, <coughs> in St. Louis uh, who was a believer. She lived upstairs from us uh, in the apartment complex, and she had a son, but she wanted a daughter. One day she came down and she told Kathy that she'd had a dream, a prophetic dream. She was going to have a daughter. She was charismatic, and she was given to such things. And guess what? She was going to have that daughter that she wanted. Not only this, she was going to have, her and her husband were going to have two Cadillacs, two top-of-the-line cars, and they were going to have this mansion. Not just a big house, but a palatial mansion. She got pregnant. And uh, the dream had even given a a name for this daughter. She was to be named Rachel. They fixed the the bedroom all up Uh, for this girl. This was before ultrasounds, by the way. There was a day when you didn't know what you were going to have. The momentous day came, and guess what? Rachel was a boy. Two more pregnancies, two more births, and two more boys. Never a girl. Never a girl, ever. Uh, They've not had any Cadillacs either, and no mansions. People often get their desires mixed up with God's will. Abraham tried to bring about God's will on his own, and the product was, was Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the promised son, not the son of God's provision. Isaac is the promised son, and in God's eyes, as he himself puts it here, the only son. But there's another aspect to Abraham and Isaac's relationship, a a, uh, a crucial aspect. The text speaks of it when it says, whom you love, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is what makes the test so poignant, so cutting, so raw. Whom you love. What kind of God would do such a thing? Those were my, my words when I, I first read this. Now, mind you, when I first read this, I wasn't a believer. My, my understanding was purely from a secular humanistic perspective. That's how we like to describe it, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, modern terminology. Let me give you biblical terminology. I was a pagan. I had a pagan perspective. I would have been classified as as an agnostic. I believe there was a God, but he didn't have anything to do with us. He was way up there, and we were way down here, and he didn't have anything to do with us. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, bam, and sacrifice him. What kind of God would do such a thing? Each of the names of God gives us new insight into who God is and how we relate to him. Each name is in its own way foundational to our understanding, our knowledge of God. It reveals to us the person of God. And I, as I have said, isn't that our ultimate calling? Everything hinges on our knowledge of God. A a right relationship with God uh, is found in the right knowledge of God. Tragically, a a, a false relationship with God is found in a false understanding of who he is. A manipulated understanding of who he is. In a bit, we will see what uh, the revelation of God has for us, how it relates to us, and uh, our understanding of God? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. This is the test, uh, the expectation, the rub. What does Abraham do? How does he respond to this test? Look at the next paragraph, verse three. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. did he question God? That's probably what I would have done. What kind of God would do such a thing? I waited 99 years for this boy, and now? You want to kill him? What kind of God would do such a thing? Yick. That's a theological term, yick. Might try to finagle my way out of it, to rationalize my way out of it. God, you're going to have to give me a little time here. I've, I've got to work through this. I've got to process it. I need some time. Besides that, I just can't get up and, and run off at the drop of a hat. I, I, I've got responsibilities. It's going to take some time. How did Abraham respond? The text says, early the next morning. Without hesitation, Abraham gets up and he gets about the job at hand. No excuses, no rationalization, nothing. He, he gets up and he gets going to do what the Lord has told him to do. <clears throat> Three days down the road, they, they come to the mountain. Uh, you see, not just any mountain would do. The Lord had a, a specific place in mind. Uh, When they arrive there, Abraham and Isaac leave the servants, and they go up on the mountain. As they do, notice what Abraham says. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Do you hear what that's saying? That lone statement is one of the most profound statements of faith given in all of Scripture. By the way, uh, these revelations of God through his names are often linked to statements of faith. In in this case, it's, we will come back to you. Do you, do you hear that? Do you, do you see what it's saying? We will come back to you. Isaac and I are going over there, and Isaac and I are going to come back to you. Abraham expected the Lord to do something... He may not have known exactly what, but he expected the Lord to do something. He knew that Isaac was the son of promise. The son through whom God was going to bless all the peoples of the earth. You and me. Something was going to happen. He may not have known exactly what, but something. You see, Abraham was letting God... Be God. Abraham and Isaac arrive on the mountain. I'm sure that destination came with serious overtones to it. Isaac had seen sacrifices before, and he knew something was missing. A a crucial piece wasn't there. Uh, In fact, he says in verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? A statement of faith, oh my, yes. And not just for Abraham, for Isaac too. He knew something was up. But like his father, he obeyed. He trusted. What we see in Isaac is an obedient son doing the will of the father. Whatever it is, he's doing the will of the father. And why? Because he knows his father loves him. Let me ask you a question. Are you aware of the Father's love for you? If so, it will be evident in your faith. It will be evident in the life you live, in what you do. It will speak loudly of your trust in God, your faith in him. A statement of faith, yes. That's what we're talking about. A a statement of where the Lord is in your life. Do you trust him or not? You trust him with your life. Do you trust him with your death? You trust him with your family. You trust him with your job. You trust him with your church. Do you trust him? You fill in the blank. Your finances, you fill in the blank. Do you trust him? Oddly enough, often it takes hardships to make such things real, to test and prove whether or not we believe what we say we believe. When the pressures of life bear down on you, what do you believe? Who or what do you trust in? Abraham builds an altar. He ties up Isaac and he puts him on that altar. Can you imagine this scene? I'll bet the tension was so thick you could cut it with the knife that Abraham would momentarily raise. I can envision Isaac's eyes uh, huge with wonder. I can sense a, a heaviness in Abraham's heart. Isaac, his son, his only son. The son he loved, tied up and laying on a stack of wood. He may have known God was going to do something, but he didn't know what. And even that knowledge belies the drama of the situation. And then when everything is in place, Abraham raises the knife in the air. Imagine... What was going through both their minds is that that blade flashed in the sunlight. His son, his only son, the son whom he loves, and yet Abraham raises that blade, and he's ready to plunge it into Isaac. What kind of God does this sort of thing? Only then does God speak. And look at his response. It, too, uh, evidences the intensity of the situation. He says, Abraham, Abraham. Did you notice that? Everywhere else, God just says, Abraham. But here he says, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, there's urgency. There's, There's absolute urgency to the situation. And then, and only then, mysteriously, a ram is caught in a thicket. Why didn't they see that ram before A substitute? Verse 11. But the angel of the Yahweh called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear Elohim, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a a burnt offering. Instead, isn't that a neat word? Instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. That's the name of God we have today. Jehovah-Jireh or or Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mount of the Yahweh, It will be provided. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. Are you beginning to get a picture here? The Lord provided for Abraham. And guess what? He's provided for you too. He's provided for all of us. Something was in process more than just a test for Abraham. Don't minimize the test for Abraham. But something more was in process here. A a test for Abraham, but a test that involves you and me as well. You see, God is laying out the story of the crucifixion. Uh, The story of the crucifixion prior to its time, centuries before its time. He is prophetically telling what would happen in real world personal aspects. Interpersonal aspects. It's a story of a father who loves his son. The story of a son who obeys his father. The story of a substitutional lamb sacrificed for others. Personal, oh my yes. (laughs) Personal for the father. Personal for the son. And personal... For you and me, we're, we're the recipients of that substitutional sacrifice. Remember how uh, John the Baptizer described Jesus when he saw him? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, in that statement, draws us right back here to Genesis 22. To this event, and with Abraham and Isaac and the Lamb caught in a thicket. He also draws us to the manger, the stable where Jesus was born, the lamb born with the other animals in the stable. Yes, in a very real sense, it's the embodiment of the Christmas message, a lamb born in a stable, the son of God who took on flesh to sacrifice himself for you and me. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide and he has provided for you and me in Jesus Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was to speak at England's vast agricultural hall. He'd never spoken there before, so he he went early. He wanted to test the acoustics. Uh, They didn't have uh, microphones and uh, speakers and stuff in that day. You had to rely totally on acoustics. And he stepped up on the podium and, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And unknown to him, way back up in the rafters, was a workman. And that workman heard that single sentence, and that single sentence pierced his heart. It convicted him of his need of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ has really done, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is ultimately the test, isn't it? It was a test for Abraham. It was a test for Isaac. And it's a test for you and me. Do you trust in what the Lord has provided? Do you let God be God? Or are you kind of out on doing it on your own? You want to, what, earn your salvation? You want to be good? You want to give enough money to the church or poor people or whatever? You want to do it on your own? In who or in what is your faith? In who or in what do you trust? Where is your trust? Verse 14 says, To this day it is said, On the mountain of the Yahweh it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. A specific message, in a specific place, Concerning a specific person. Are you listening? God wanted the location known. Specifically known. Why? Because when Jesus the Lamb of God was crucified there. He wanted it prophetically identifiable. This is the story of a father who loves his son. The story of a son who obeys his father. The story of a substitutional lamb sacrificed for you and me. The Lord provided for Abraham, and the point is he will provide for you too. The important question, the the test for us is, is have you accepted his provision in the lamb? The Lord has provided, have you received it? But it just doesn't apply to accepting the Lord. We as believers need to let the Lord provide too. So often we step out. We don't let the Lord provide for us. And often those provisions come in hard circumstances, difficult circumstances. Circumstances that are not easy. In his book, If God is Good, Faith in the Midst of Suffering and Evil, Randy Alcorn recounts the breast cancer of his friend Ethel Eyre. Two months later, doctors discovered that the cancer had spread. One of Hare's friends, shocked and fumbling for words, asked her, And how do you feel about God now? Reflecting on the moment the question was posed to her, Hare says, As I sought to explain what has happened in my spirit, It became clearer to me, God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways I've never known before. He has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given me joy such as I've never known before, and I've no need to work at it. It just comes, even amidst the tears. He has taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. And he planned it all in such a way that step by step he prepared me for the moment when the doctor dropped the last shoe. God is good. No matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearful fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither, the key to knowing God is good is simply knowing God. The Lord wants you to know him fully, completely, and personally. He wants you aware of how he has provided for you in ways you don't even know how he's loved you. He also wants you aware of where you stand, where in reality you are, and that's the test. That's when the tests will come. Do you really believe in me, he's asking? Do you trust me? Are you letting God be God? Bow with me. Father, as we close this morning, we do so mindful that you have provided for us. You have provided for us because you love us, Father. And it's your caring hand that's on our lives. I pray, Father, if there are those who don't know you, that this day they will hear the story of your love, the story of your provision. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and they will accept that provision in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, each of us has needs that we would realize even in those you have provided for us. But it's not always easy. It's not always fun. Sometimes that provision comes in difficult circumstances. I pray you would lift us up and you would love us and you'd let us know that, Father. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.